chapter sixteen of la barre by jory karl heismans translated by keen wallace this librivox recording is in the public domain when i think said durtal to himself the next morning that in bed at the moment when the most pertinacious will succumbs i held firm and refused to yield to the instances of hyacinthe wishing to establish a footing here and that after the carnal decline at that instant when annihilated man recovers alas his reason i supplicated her myself to continue her visits why i simply cannot understand myself deep down i have not got over my firm resolution of breaking with her but i could not dismiss her like a cocotte and to justify his inconsistency i hoped to get some information about the canon oh on that subject i am not through with her she's got to make up her mind to speak out and quit answering me by monosyllables and guarded phrases as she did yesterday indeed what can she have been up to with that abbe who was her confessor and who by her own admission launched her into incubacy she has been his mistress that is certain and how many other of these priests she has gone round with have been her lovers also for she confessed in a cry that those are the men she loves ah if one went about much in the clerical world one would doubtless learn remarkable things concerning her and her husband it is strange all the same that chanteloube who plays a singular role in that household has acquired a deplorable reputation and she hasn't never have i heard anybody speak of her dodges but oh what a fool i am it isn't strange her husband doesn't confine himself to religious and polite circles he hobnobs with men of letters and in consequence exposes himself to every sort of slander while she if she takes a lover chooses him out of a pious society in which not one of us would ever be received and then abbes are discreet but how explain her infatuation with me by the simple fact that she is surfeited of priests and a layman serves as a change of diet just the same she is quite singular and the more i see her the less i understand her there are in her three distinct beings first the woman seated or standing up whom i knew in her drawing-room reserved almost haughty who becomes a good companion in private affectionate and even tender then the woman in bed completely changed in voice and bearing a harlot spitting mud losing all shame third and last the pitiless vixen the thorough satanist whom i perceived yesterday what is the binding alloy that amalgamates all these beings of hers i can't say hypocrisy no doubt no i don't think so for she is often of a disconcerting frankness in moments it is true of forgetfulness and unguardedness seriously what is the use of trying to understand the character of this pious harlot and to be candid with myself what i wish ideally will never be realized she does not ask me to take her to swell places does not force me to dine with her exacts no revenue she isn't trying to compromise and blackmail me i shan't find a better but oh lord i now prefer to find no one at all it suits me perfectly to entrust my carnal business to mercenary agents for my twenty francs i shall receive more considerate treatment there is no getting around it only professionals know how to cook up a delicious sensual dish odd he said to himself after a reflective silence but all proportions duly observed gilles de ray divides himself like her into three different persons first the brave and honest fighting man then the refined and artistic criminal 
finally the repentant sinner the mystic he is a mass of contradictions and excesses viewing his life as a whole one finds each of his vices compensated by a contradictory virtue but there is no key characteristic which reconciles them he is of an overweening arrogance but when contrition takes possession of him he falls on his knees in front of the people of low estate and has the tears the humility of a saint his ferocity passes the limits of the human scale and yet he is generous and sincerely devoted to his friends whom he cares for like a brother when the demon has mauled them impetuous in his desires and nevertheless patient brave in battle a coward confronting eternity he is despotic and violent yet he is putty in the hands of his flatterers he is now in the clouds now in the abyss never on the trodden plain the lowlands of the soul his confessions do not throw any light on his invariable tendency to extremes when asked who suggested to him the idea of such crimes he answers no one the thought came to me only from myself from my reveries my daily pleasures my taste for debauchery and he arraigns his indolence and constantly asserts that delicate repasts and strong drink have helped uncage the wild animal in him unresponsive to mediocre passions he is carried away alternately by good as well as evil and he bounds from spiritual pole to spiritual pole he dies at the age of thirty-six but he has completely exhausted the possibilities of joy and grief he has adored death loved as a vampire kissed inimitable expressions of suffering and terror and has himself been racked by implacable remorse insatiable fear he has nothing more to try nothing more to learn here below let's see said durtal running over his notes i left him at the moment when the expiation begins as i had written in one of my preceding chapters the inhabitants of the region dominated by the chateau of the marshal know now who the inconceivable monster is who carries children off and cuts their throats but no one dare speak when at a turn in the road the tall figure of the butcher is seen approaching all flee huddle behind the hedges or shut themselves up in the cottages and gilles passes haughty and sombre in the solitude of villages where no one dares venture abroad impunity seems assured him for what peasant would be mad enough to attack a master who could have him gibbeted at a word again if the humble give up the idea of bringing gilles de ray to justice his peers have no intention of combating him for the benefit of peasants whom they disdain and his liege the duke of brittany jean V, burdens him with favours and blandishments in order to extort his lands from him at a low price a single power can rise and above feudal complicities above earthly interest avenge the oppressed and the weak the church and it is the church in fact in the person of jean de malestroit which rises up before the monster and fells him jean de malestroit bishop of nantes belongs to an illustrious line he is a near kinsman of jean V, and his incomparable piety his infallible christian wisdom and his enthusiastic charity make him venerated even by the duke the wailing of gilles decimated flock reaches his ears in silence he begins an investigation and setting spies upon the marshal waits only for an opportune moment to begin the combat and gilles suddenly commits an inexplicable crime which permits the bishop to march forthwith upon him and smite him to recuperate his shattered fortune gilles has sold his seigneurie of saint etienne de mer morte to a subject of jean v guillaume le ferron who delegates his brother 
jean le ferron to take possession of the domain some days later the marshal gathers the two hundred men of his military household and at their head marches on saint etienne there the day of pentecost when the assembled people are hearing mass he precipitates himself sword in hand into the church sweeps aside the faithful throwing them into tumult and before the dumbfounded priest threatens to cleave jean le ferron who is praying the ceremony is broken off the congregation take flight gilles drags le ferron pleading for mercy to the chateau orders that the drawbridge be let down and by force occupies the place while his prisoner is carried away to tiffauges and thrown into an underground dungeon gilles has at one and the same time violated the unwritten law of brittany forbidding any baron to raise troops without the consent of the duke and committed double sacrilege in profaning a chapel and seizing jean le ferron who is a tonsured clerk of the church the bishop learns of this outrage and prevails upon the reluctant jean V to march against the rebel then while one army advances on saint etienne which gilles abandons to take refuge with his little band in the fortified manor of Machecoul, another army lays siege to tiffauges during this time the priest hastens his redoubled investigations he delegates commissioners and procurators in all the villages where children have disappeared he himself quits his palace at nantes travels about the countryside and takes the depositions of the bereft the people at last speak and on their knees beseech the bishop to protect them enraged by the atrocities which they reveal he swears that justice shall be done it takes a month to hear all the reports by letters patent jean de malestroit establishes publicly the infamatio of gilles then when all the forms of canonic procedure have been gone through with he launches the mandate of arrest in this writ of warrant given at nantes the thirteenth day of september in the year of our lord fourteen forty the bishop notes all the crimes imputed to the marshal then in an energetic style he commands his diocese to march against the assassin and dislodge him thus we do enjoin you each and all individually by these presents that ye cite immediately and peremptorily without counting any man upon his neighbour without discharging the burden any man upon his neighbour that ye cite before us or before the official of our cathedral church for monday of the feast of exaltation of the holy cross the nineteenth of september gilles noble baron de ray subject to our puissance and to our jurisdiction and we do ourselves cite him by these presents to appear before our bar to answer for the crimes which weigh upon him execute these orders and do each of you cause them to be executed and the next day the captain-at-arms jean l'abbé acting in the name of the duke and robin guillaume notary acting in the name of the bishop present themselves escorted by a small troop before the chateau of marchecoul what sudden change of heart does the marshal now experience too feeble to hold his own in the open field he can nevertheless defend himself behind the sheltering ramparts yet he surrenders roger de briqueville and gilles sillet his trusted counsellors have taken flight he remains alone with prelati who also attempts in vain to escape he like gilles is loaded with chains robin guillaume searches the fortress from top to bottom he discovers bloody clothes imperfectly calcinated ashes which prelati has not had time to throw into the latrines amid universal maledictions and cries of horror gilles and his servitors are conducted to nîmes and incarcerated in the chateau de la tour neuve now this part is not very clear said durtal to himself 
remembering what a daredevil the marshal had been how can we reconcile ourselves to the idea that he could give himself up to certain death and torture without striking a blow was he softened weakened by his nights of debauchery terrified by the audacity of his own sacrileges ravaged and torn by remorse was he tired of living as he did and did he give himself up as so many murderers do because he was irresistibly attracted to punishment nobody knows did he think himself above the law because of his lofty rank or did he hope to disarm the duke by playing upon his venality offering him a ransom of manors and farmland one answer is as plausible as another he may also have known how hesitant jean v had been for fear of rousing the wrath of the nobility of his duchy about yielding to the objurgations of the bishop and raising troops for the pursuit and arrest well there is no document which answers these questions an author can take some liberties here and set down his own conjectures but that curious trial is going to give me some trouble as soon as gilles and his accomplices are incarcerated two tribunals are organized one ecclesiastical to judge the crimes coming under the jurisdiction of the church the other civil to judge those on which the state must pass to tell the truth the civil tribunal which is present at the ecclesiastical hearings effaces itself completely as a matter of form it makes a brief cross-examination but it pronounces the sentence of death which the church cannot permit itself to utter according to the old adage ecclesia abhorret a sanguine the ecclesiastical trial lasts five weeks the civil forty-eight hours it seems that to hide behind the robes of the bishop the duke of brittany has voluntarily subordinated the role of civil justice which ordinarily stands up for its rights against the encroachments of the ecclesiastical court jean de malestroit presides over the hearings he chooses for assistance the bishops of mans of saint brieuc and of saint lo then in addition he surrounds himself with a troop of jurists who work in relays in the interminable sessions of the trial some of the more important are guillaume de montigny advocate of the secular court jean blanchet bachelor of laws guillaume Groiguet, and robert de la riviere licentiates in outroque jure and hervé lévy senescal of quimper pierre de l'hôpital chancellor of brittany who is to preside over the civil hearings after the canonic judgment assists jean de malestroit the public prosecutor is guillaume chapelon curate of saint nicolas an eloquent and subtle man adjunct to him to relieve him of the fatigue of the readings are geoffroy pibrere dean of saint marie and jacques de panquedic official of the church of nantes in connection with the episcopal jurisdiction the church has called in the assistance of the extraordinary tribunal of the inquisition for the repression of the crime of heresy then comprehending perjury blasphemy sacrilege all the crimes of magic it sits at the side of jean de malestroit in the redoubtable and learned person of jean blouin of the order of saint dominique delegated by the grand inquisitor of france guillaume merici to the functions of vice inquisitor of the city and diocese of nantes the tribunal constituted the trial opens the first thing in the morning because judges and witnesses in accordance with the custom of the times must proceed fasting to the giving and hearing of evidence the testimony of the parents of the victims is heard and robin guillaume acting sergeant-at-arms the man who arrested the marshal at Marchecoul reads the citation bidding gilles de ray appear he is brought in and declares disdainfully that he does not recognize the competence of the tribunal but as canonic procedure demands 
the prosecutor at once in order that by this means the correction of sorcery be not prevented petitions for and obtains from the tribunal a ruling that this objection be quashed as being null in law and frivolous he begins to read to the accused the counts on which he is to be tried gilles cries out that the prosecutor is a liar and a traitor then guillaume chaperon extends his hand toward the crucifix swears that he is telling the truth and challenges the marshal to take the same oath but this man who has recoiled from no sacrilege is troubled he refuses to perjure himself before god and the session ends with gilles still vociferating outrageous denunciations of the prosecutor the preliminaries completed a few days later the public hearings begin the act of indictment is read aloud to the accused in front of an audience who shudder when chaperon indefatigably enumerates the crimes one by one and formally accuses the marshal of having practised sorcery and magic of having polluted and slain little children of having violated the immunities of holy church at saint etienne de mer morte then after a silence he resumes his discourse and making no account of the murders but dwelling only on the crimes of which the punishment foreseen by canonic law can be fixed by the church he demands that gilles be smitten with double excommunication first as an evoker of demons a heretic apostate and renegade second as a sodomist and perpetrator of sacrilege gilles who has listened to this incisive and scathing indictment completely loses control of himself he insults the judges calls them simonists and ribalds and refuses to answer the questions put to him the prosecutor and advocates are unmoved they invite him to present his defence again he denounces them insults them but when called upon to refute them he remains silent the bishop and vice inquisitor declare him in contempt and pronounce against him the sentence of excommunication which is soon made public they decide in addition that the hearing shall be continued next day a ring of the doorbell interrupted durtal's perusal of his notes des hermies entered i have just seen carré he is ill he said that's so what seems to be the matter nothing very serious a slight attack of bronchitis he'll be up in a few days if he will consent to keep quiet i must go see him tomorrow said durtal and what are you doing inquired des hermies working hard why yes i am digging into the trial of the noble baron de ray it will be as tedious to read as to write and you don't know yet when you will finish your volume no answered durtal stretching as a matter of fact i wish it might never be finished what will become of me when it is i'll have to look around for another subject and when i find one do all the drudgery of planning and then getting the introductory chapter written the mean part of any literary work is getting started i shall pass mortal hours doing nothing really when i think it over literature has only one excuse for existing it saves the person who makes it from the disgustingness of life and charitably it lessens the distress of us few who still love art few indeed and the number keeps diminishing the new generation no longer interests itself in anything except gambling and jockeys yes you're quite right the men can't spare from gambling the time to read so it is only the society women who buy books and pass judgment on them it is to the lady as schopenhauer called her to the little goose as i should characterize her that we are indebted for these shoals of lukewarm and mucilaginous novels which nowadays get puffed you think then that we are in for a pretty literature naturally you can't please women by enunciating vigorous ideas in a crisp style 
but durtal went on after a silence it is perhaps best that the case should be as it is the rare artists who remain have no business to be thinking about the public the artist lives and works far from the drawing-room far from the clamour of the little fellows who fix up the custom-made literature the only legitimate source of vexation to an author is to see his work when printed exposed to the contaminating curiosity of the crowd that is said des hermies a veritable prostitution to advertise a thing for sale is to accept the degrading familiarities of the first comer but our impenitent pride and also our need of the miserable sous make it impossible for us to keep our manuscripts sheltered from the asses art ought to be like one's beloved out of reach out of the world art and prayer are the only decent ejaculations of the soul so when one of my books appears i let go of it with horror i get as far as possible from the environment in which it may be supposed to circulate i care very little about a book of mine until years afterward when it has disappeared from all the shop windows and is out of print briefly i am in no hurry to finish the history of gilles de ray which unfortunately is getting finished in spite of me i don't give a damn how it is received are you doing anything this evening no why shall we dine together certainly and while durtal was putting on his shoes des hermies remarked to me the striking thing about the so-called literary world of this epoch is its cheap hypocrisy what a lot of laziness for instance that word dilettante has served to cover yes it's a great old alibi but it is confounding to see that the critic who to-day decrees himself the title of dilettante accepts it as a term of praise and does not even suspect that he is slapping himself the whole thing can be resolved into syllogism the dilettante has no personal temperament since he objects to nothing and likes everything whoever has no personal temperament has no talent then rejoined des hermies putting on his hat an author who boasts of being a dilettante confesses by that very thing that he is no author exactly End of chapter 16